The first is Matthew 22, 1 through 14, which is a parable of the wedding feast. It's uh, not without significance, not only that this follows some other parables, but follows the response of the Pharisees who, when they heard the parables, perceived that he was speaking about them and wanted to kill him. And that's also what follows this parable, that same response. But we're going to read just the first 14 verses. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then said he, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, He saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We next turn to Revelation 19. Again, not without significance, this chapter ends with an amazing description, an awesome description of Christ and His return on the clouds of heaven. But our interest right now is just the first nine verses. Revelation 19, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him. 
for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. In the light of those passages and many others in Scripture, we consider this evening is our text, Lord's Day 29 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 29. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ. Though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ, Jesus. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? Or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the exact topic of this particular Lord's Day is not simply the Lord's Supper in general. That's been well explained in the previous Lord's Day. But it addresses what we call often theologically the sacramental union that is found in the sacrament, the sacramental union. It is worth noting that, in the first place, this is not exactly a new subject. Perhaps even the term is familiar to you because it also was brought up in connection with holy baptism where similar questions were asked. It was asked with regard to baptism why it is that 
the water of baptism is called the washing away of sins, and why baptism is called the washing of regeneration. And not only that, but the Catechism also had to explain, basically also, what it also explains with regard to the Lord's Supper, which is, neither is it the case that baptism is a mere sign, only a sign. So it treated there the, really the same subject. And, and so what is said here tonight with regard to the sacramental union may be applied to baptism. And our fathers indicate that even in this Lord's Day when they bring up baptism too. You'll notice that question answer 78 is answered by appealing to what happens in baptism. It answers the question of whether the sacramental union is such that the elements or signs are turned into the reality. Do they become the reality? And part of the answer is, well, no. That doesn't happen in baptism, and so it doesn't happen in the Lord's Supper. So it shows you that this subject is something that was addressed earlier. Nevertheless, we're going to speak about it tonight. The other thing that needs to be noted in this regard is that there is a polemic going on. Our fathers are not addressing the sacramental union simply because it is important, and hopefully by the end of the sermon you will see the importance of a right understanding of this. But they're doing so because at the time this was written in the Reformation, uh, this was the heart of great controversy, uh, not only with Rome, but among the Protestants themselves. And so this idea of the sacramental union is brought up over against the error of some, most notably the Anabaptists, who said, as was also said with regard to baptism from a certain point of view, that the sacrament is merely a sign. That's all it is. It's a bare sign, actually. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. They place great emphasis upon that term. This do in remembrance. It's just a remembering. It's a sort of consideration, a celebration. And over against that, our, our fathers say, no, that, that's not how we explain the union of the sacrament. That's not how we explain the relationship between the sign and reality, because that's what a sacramental union is. It's explaining what is the relationship between the sign and the reality. And so the first question is, is the sign just a bare sign? Is there no reality that it points to? Now keep in mind that in a sacrament, there is participation in the sacrament. Water of baptism is administered to someone. And in the Lord's Supper, someone eats and drinks. So that's an important question. And over against those who are basically saying, it's just a sign, just a memorial, our fathers say, no, no, it's more than that. Such is the union that there's a communication to certain in the sacrament by the sign. But then they had to address another error, error held by the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics, which said the sacramental union is such that the sign communicates the reality to everyone who receives the sign. 
And they did that in two different ways. The Roman Catholics taught that the sign is changed into the reality. So that at some point in the administration of the sacrament, the bread is actually changed into the physical body of Christ, and the wine is changed into the blood of Christ. It may look like bread, and it may smell like wine, but it's actually the body and blood of Christ that everyone eats and drinks as it's doled out by the priest at the altar. There's more to Roman Catholic doctrine that our fathers are going to address in no uncertain terms in Lord's Day 30, but right now our interest is their view on the sacramental union. Then there were the Lutherans, who took a similar position in that Christ is physically really present with his body and blood, his flesh, this way. That it's mingled in with the bread and the wine. So that one who partakes of the bread automatically also partakes in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And one who drinks the cup of wine. The blood of Christ is mingled in. It's mixed in, as it were, with the wine, so that one who drinks the wine necessarily also receives the blood of Christ. And our fathers here say no. That too is not a right understanding of the sacramental union. Now, this could all be explained simply in connection with the Lord's Day itself, as the Heidelberg Catechism does. But this evening I want to add a twist to it, basically by building on something that I brought to your attention last time we considered Lord's Day 28, which is to look at that idea of the sacramental union and explain it from the perspective of something that we often overlook with regard to the Lord's Supper, and it's easy to overlook. The Lord's Supper is a supper. And there, the sign and the seal of the Lord's Supper explain the reality in terms of eating and drinking. And don't forget that they're explaining there not only the sacramental union, the sacramental union is a doctrine that only serves to understand how it is that we're actually united to the reality, which is Christ. And the sacrament is one of eating and drinking. It says, so much are you united to Christ that you actually eat and drink Him. But what we also forget is that there's a very close connection between the Lord's Supper and marriage. That there is a very close connection between the sign and reality of the sacrament And the reality that our union with Christ is a marriage. So I want to enter into that as we consider the sacramental union under the theme this evening, the marriage of the Holy Supper. The marriage of the Holy Supper. And we're going to look at that sacramental union first of all, then the spiritual participation, and finally the eternal benefit. Admittedly, There is little that one can glean from the Lord's Day itself that makes the connection between the Lord's Supper and the reality that we as a church are spiritually united to Christ in marriage. 
Yet it's there and may not be overlooked. So rich is the reality and the blessedness of being united to Christ that the Bible presses into service a number of pictures in this regard. We're seeing that in the book of Ephesians. As we go through that, you have noticed, no doubt, that the church cannot simply be represented in its relationship to Christ by one picture. And so that relationship is described in terms of children and parents, family. It's described in terms of a body and head. It's described in terms of a living church where God resides. And it's also described as marriage. The great marriage of Christ in the church. The great mystery. And I've said to you, too, that that is really the predominant picture. And so it should not surprise us that when it comes to a sacrament, the sacrament that the Lord institutes, that it's going to come a particular way that makes sense and is understandable, but it too is very rich and multifaceted. And it's brought out a number of ways. It should not surprise us that our union to Jesus Christ is in the sacrament a supper, a supper of food and drink. And the picture there is so plain that anyone can see it. You talk about a plain parable, the sacrament is that plain. So much so that the early church was accused of cannibalism. And the sign in the picture is that the union that we have with Christ is no different, no different such that it may be pictured as eating and drinking Him, so that you become what you eat and drink. That we all know. That the human race is always known. You are what you eat, and you are what you drink. We eat and drink Christ. We therefore are so united to Him that we are have Him in us and we are in Him. But that union may also, in the very same supper, be described as a marriage. And that we must never lose sight of. And this is not something that I have dreamed up or that is obscure. It's brought out even in our Lord's Supper form, which hopefully we will read together in a few weeks. And in that form, Ephesians 5 is specifically cited. When it's explaining the union, Explaining not simply the sacramental union, the relationship between the sign and the reality, but the reality itself, it doesn't simply appeal to food and drink. 
that we become one with Christ's flesh such that we're eating and drinking Him. But it quotes Ephesians 5, that we become bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh, which is a reference to the great marriage of Christ and the church and the words of Adam with regard to his marriage to Eve. This connection, this part of the Lord's Supper that's inherent in the sign and thus speaks to the sacramental union is brought out also by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know that there are a number of parables that he gave where among the picture of the parable is where he likens the kingdom of heaven, that is, the relationship between the king and the citizens, to a marriage feast and involvement in the marriage feast. One of those is Matthew 22 that we read where it's likened to a supper in which a king invites guests to celebrate the marriage of his son. You will find another in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 and following. They each have their own teaching. We don't, unfortunately, have time to look at the one in Luke 14, but there's some wonderful teaching of the Lord in there. Also, in Revelation 19, which we did read, the end of time, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cloud of heaven, is likened to a marriage feast that what is about to happen is the consummation of a marriage and the involvement of many in the celebration of that marriage. And there the guests are called blessed. Those who participate are called blessed. Keep in mind also that passage of Scripture that we read last time, from John 6, where Jesus describes himself not simply as the bread of life that we eat, and not only says that the bread we eat is his flesh and his blood, but as Jesus does in the parable in Luke 14, and as made clear also in Revelation 19, the result is everlasting life. That there's a connection here between what goes on in the supper and everlasting life. In fact, there in John 6, the Lord even reminds us that there's a connection to the resurrection from the dead. and makes clear that He will raise at the last day only those who eat and drink Him and participate in His flesh. If you look at the end of Revelation 19, you'll discover that same relationship when something gruesome happens to the flesh 
of all those who do not participate in that marriage supper. Those who do not participate in that marriage and marriage supper, that is, those who do not participate and are joined to the flesh of Jesus Christ, will have their flesh consumed. Jesus, in these passages and in these parables, goes on to explain some of the signs, some of the realities, some of the similarities that connect the Lord's Supper to marriage. One of them should be obvious, so obvious I hardly dare need to point it out, which is that both our suppers, both involve suppers, even among us. We rarely, if ever, have a marriage without a supper. If one would say, I went to a marriage and I attended a marriage, it's difficult to tell whether they're talking about just the ceremony or what we call the reception afterwards. We all know that in a wedding, in a marriage, that a great deal of it concerns the fact that family and friends gather together to enjoy food and drink and especially fellowship. And that which unites them in fellowship is their joy and delight over the marriage itself. There is also this that Jesus brings out, which is that in the marriages and in the marriage feast, others are excluded. Some are excluded from that celebration. The Lord makes plain in these parables that they fall in different categories, and the one that we read excluded were, of course, the many who had no interest in the celebration itself. They had no interest in the marriage. They had no interest in the fellowship of those at the marriage feast. And so when they are called to attend and participate, <coughs> they depart to that which really interests them, their farm and their house and their other pleasures and concerns in their life. Then there is another that is excluded who does attend. When called, he comes. But when he is at the feast, he is excluded because of his behavior. In the parable of Matthew 22, he was an individual that did not bother to put on a robe the robe that normally, the special clothing that one would normally wear to a wedding feast. The point there is those excluded are people and individuals who disrespect and dishonor the Lord of the feast. Special clothes is required. They don't care. He gives other examples about those who show they did not care by not preparing. They did not prepare for the feast by getting oil for their lamps. And so when the marriage is consummated, they're found fast asleep. There are others who are excluded because when they get to the feast, they take all the chief seats as if they are the honored guests. Pride. 
And so you can see a connection even in these things and some of the things that the Lord is teaching and see that they all apply to the Lord's Supper itself. It's not simply a supper. It's not simply about eating and drinking. As our form even points out, it has to do with communion. And it does not simply have to do with communion with Christ as a eating and drinking of Him, but in so much that all are participating in the same meal, there is a union and communion of the guests. Those who participate are joined together. There's even a phrase about that, about how out of many grains one bread is baked. And out of many berries there's one wine made. It's talking there, not about our union with Christ as such, but how all the guests are brought into communion and fellowship by the marriage and by the food and drink that they eat. And you can see that flows right out of the biblical picture. There is a command to participate. The Lord does not leave participation in the Lord's Supper up to us no more than He leaves participation in the great marriage supper in the future up to us. He commands. Those who refuse His command because they have other interests or those who refuse to prepare have only themselves to blame. The Lord commands, especially those who are baptized into His covenant when come to years of discretion to confess their faith and participate in the great supper of the Lord. There are some excluded. There are some who are not called. There are some who, when called, say, I have no interest, really, in the supper of the Lord. They either do that in their own life and behavior, or they do that by allowing themselves to be placed under discipline and argue that that was unjust. There are others who attend the supper, but they have not prepared. We have a preparatory for good reason. Yet still some come. They are not adorned in the robes of Christ's righteousness. They do not see any sin in themselves, so they place themselves in the chief seats as if they deserve to be there, and all assorted other nonsense whereby people are excluded. And the point of all this is all of it has to do with the sacramental union. The sacramental union must be explained in terms of these other pictures and these other realities. First of all, what they teach is yet once again this truth. Over against the Anabaptists and many others, perhaps even over against <clears throat> our own understanding of the sacrament at times, we must insist and the church must teach and hold fast to the truth that what we eat and drink 
is truly the flesh of Christ, truly his body, and truly his blood. It's evident in the explanation of the Heidelberg Catechism itself. It begins that already in question and answer 76, where it says that the result is we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Where, when it goes on to explain the sacramental union, it says, so we eat the crucified body and shed blood, and they are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed, and notice, to eternal life, and then explains that. What this points out in the sacrament, beloved, is the main point. What we must remember, beloved, is in spite of all the wrong views and the careful explanation of the catechism, in spite of the great attention paid to explaining the sacrament by our catechism and even by our form, the essential thing to believe, the essential thing that is the reality taught by the sign is that we must be so joined to Christ that we are one flesh. The sacrament practically screams it at us. When we believe and when we say we believe in Christ, this may not be an abstraction. It may not be some sort of ethereal concept. When we say that we are joined to Christ, regardless of what follows, by faith or in the supper, Christ saw it so important that we believe we are one flesh that he put it in the most graphic terms possible and then added to it many, many more pictures like marriage. And perhaps here it's worth a pause to remember the mystery of marriage. The great mystery of marriage is that there is a union. The union is not one of vows. The union is not such that two persons become one person. That's not what Scripture says. It's not the case that one person is absorbed into the other person so that now there's only one person in the marriage. There are always two persons. Else you have not a union. But nevertheless, there is a union. Two are made one. But precisely now, how are they one? Is there now only one mind and one heart and one will in the marriage? No, that's not mysterious. There's nothing 
mysterious about that at all. It's a mistake many make with regard to marriage. That we're going to get married now, and now, woman, you will have no longer a heart and a will and a mind in this marriage. It's all about me. No. The great mystery of marriage is that there remains two. Two persons. Two souls. Two individuals. And if you doubt me on that, simply look at your spouse next to you. They are not you. You are not them. But yet you are one. How one? Well, you are two in one flesh. That's the mystery. But the same thing holds true with us in Christ. If you can't quite explain that with regard to marriage, how in the world are you going to explain it with regard to Christ? So all the pictures. How much are we one with Christ? Well, are we one such that we become absorbed into Him? There's now only Christ. You lose your identity. You lose your person. You lose your mind and your will. No. No, the great mystery is that there's Christ and then there's all the members. There's Christ and then there's the church. And yet, we may not forget that there is a union of flesh. This is the amazing thing. You see, it emphasizes many truths, but one of them is there is no salvation without Christ. And there is no Christ unless the Son of God takes our flesh. And there is no salvation for our flesh unless we are united to that flesh. I can't make it any plainer. We may not and we may never have the idea simply that God saves us through the Son divine. The great mystery, the great wonder of God's salvation is God chose to do this by taking our flesh and making it impossible for us to be saved or enjoy any benefits of that salvation unless we are truly united to Christ. And it's not just a thought. It's not just a notion. It's not just a concept. It's not just a doctrine. Those things can't save you. What saves you <clears throat> is literal union with Christ and with His flesh. And the Lord's Supper teaches that. And marriage teaches you that. And that's the sacramental union. When we come, part of the sacramental union is that the sign so represents the reality that when you participate rightly, rightly now, then you receive the reality. <clears throat> so closely are the sign and the reality identified that Christ could say, this is my body. And that's what's said at the Lord's Supper. Think of that. Think of the great mystery next time you participate in the Lord's Supper. That the great wonder is that Christ who is in heaven in His flesh in His flesh now, is giving it to you.
giving it to you to eat and drink. That may never depart from us. And we may never lose that. Lose that and you lose salvation. There is real salvation. There is real power. There is real life only in the flesh of Christ, in His body and in His blood. That is the first point the Catechism makes here. Now there's more. There's a problem, you see, which is brought out by another error, which is this. Is now, since that's true, that what we really need to eat and drink is Christ, is it such that the sacramental union is that everyone then who participates, everyone who eats and drinks the bread and the wine, do they receive Christ? Do they receive the flesh of Christ? The answer is no. That cannot be. On the one hand, our fathers are insistent that we truly eat and drink Christ in the sacrament. I was going to demonstrate that um, a little more clearly. don't have time for that. But this is important to bring out, which is that both creeds that treat this, namely the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, bring out something important about eating Christ's flesh, His body and blood, which is they make a parallel between our earthly physical life and our earthly, our spiritual life. And they say when it comes to recognizing the importance of eating and drinking the flesh of Christ, one must see that the necessity is that of life itself and the support of life. And here it's very important to recognize that. Both the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism say that we have an earthly physical life that's given to you by God. And what happens if you don't eat and drink? And the answer is you die. That food and drink is necessary to sustain and support that life. So also with regard to the Lord's Supper. Now, here it's worth pointing out what we said earlier, but it's worth emphasizing that the Lord's Supper does not give that life. What it does is support and sustain a life that's already given. It's a spiritual life. It's not a spiritual life that everyone possesses. The Lord's Supper can only sustain and strengthen a life in those who have been given that life. That, by the way, settles the issue when we talk about participation. That participation doesn't give that life. Participation doesn't even begin with our participation, but really participation begins already when God grants a spiritual life. But at the same time, our fathers are saying, don't ever take the notion that God grants a spiritual life and then just doesn't care about it. Or that spiritual life is of the kind that it doesn't need any sustenance. Some people take that position. Well, once you're given... Christ's life, it's eternal life, you, you, you really don't need anything after that. 
That's not true. Right there in the picture. Right there in the picture that our creeds, both creeds, say, in the supper, the Lord is teaching by means of the sacramental union that that life is such that it needs to be sustained. And it needs to be sustained by the very source of that life. When we're given life, what are we given? We're given Christ. We're given the Spirit of Christ. God implants the Spirit of Christ in us. We call that regeneration. And now the sacrament reminds us that that life needs to be maintained, strengthened, sustained. And that's done actively in the Lord's Supper by eating and drinking Him by faith. But now, is the sacramental union such that everyone receives that? And our fathers say, no. No, that can't be. Because to receive the life of Christ is to be saved. To receive the life of Christ is to receive eternal life. If even hypothetically one received that life in a moment and in a flash and never participated in the Lord's Supper, perhaps because they died, like a little child, they would be saved. You see, it has to do with the fact that these are means of grace. We receive Christ, we receive His life, and therefore we're receiving grace. This is the life of Christ that was crucified on the cross, that came out of the grave. So, if the sacramental union is explained in this way, that such is the relationship that every single person head for head who receives the bread and the wine also receives the reality you've also made a grievous error. And you've really made Christ of none effect. Because it's clear that not everyone, even as with regard to baptism, who receives the sign, receives the reality. There are many who have been baptized and many who have participated in the Lord's Supper for a long, long time who will perish in hell. They didn't really participate. They didn't receive the reality and truth. And if they truly receive Christ, then the matter of salvation or perishing has nothing to do with Christ. The flesh of Christ really doesn't do anything. It's not really what saves you. It's not really where this life comes from. It's really all about you. And so our fathers have to treat that too. There they remind us that we actively participate. It's very important for us to take note, beloved, that Christ in the supper is present spiritually. That flesh is in heaven, and nevertheless, that flesh is communicated to us spiritually. He's there. But also, does not come to us in God's good will in such a way that we're force-fed, or in such a way that it's injected into us without our knowledge. That, too, is plain in the sacrament. We participate not with our earthly mouths and our earthly stomachs, but by the hands and the mouth of faith.
says the Belgian Confession. That part of the spiritual life that God gives us and that must be sustained is faith itself. This living thing called faith, this thing, this gift of God that He implants within us. And then by that faith, we eat and drink Christ. The child of God is active in that. That's why we participate. When we say we participate by faith, what we mean by that is that one understands knowingly what the sacrament is all about. It's why we require confession of faith with regard to the Lord's Supper. It's why not everyone, even little children, can participate. One must participate knowingly, understandingly of what he is eating and drinking. We participate when we hear the Word that accompanies that sacrament. The sacrament never comes just by itself. It comes with the Word. There's a sermon that's preached. There's a form that's read. There's something said as the elements are distributed, and faith believes that. And notice also in the explanation of the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's repeated again and again, can't miss it, that it explains the words of Jesus in regard to the sacramental union, this is my body, this way, and our form does the same thing. That faith believes that even as I eat and drink the bread and the wine, so also, or as, I receive the body and blood of Christ. It does not believe that it is, as we're going to explain in Lord's Day 30, such that all who receive it, it's not is that way, otherwise we have idolatry. Otherwise, that's no different than me setting up a cow or a bull and saying, that is God. No, it's not. But it's as. I believe there is such a union between the bread and the wine and the body and blood of Christ. There's a marriage there, if you will, that I believe that Christ is feeding me himself. That he's caring for my spiritual life as really as he cares for my earthly physical life. What's the result and benefit of that? Well, that life is strengthened. That life is nourished. It's fed as really as you were eating food and drink. There's much I could say about that, but there's one thing I want to especially call attention to this evening, which is, it's remarkable that when one considers the benefit of the Lord's Supper and even the pictures, the pictures of marriage and that union, it is remarkable that the Scriptures always bring us, it seems, to remember that that life is eternal, and therefore it pertains to the resurrection lest we imagine that God grants us life, and even the sustenance of that life is dependent upon our activity, there is always the resurrection where our flesh, the flesh we received from our father Adam and mother Eve, is lying in the grave, dead, perhaps dust. There's no life there. 
And yet it's a life that Christ redeemed on the cross. I mean a body, your flesh. It has been redeemed. And the amazing thing is that through eating and drinking Christ's flesh, being joined to His flesh, that body, that former flesh, is brought forth from the grave. Again, I can't explain that. But it's amazing how time and time Scripture reminds us of that. We often think of the here and now when we participate in the Lord's Supper, but always the Scriptures bring us ahead. They say, look to the marriage. Look to the consummation of all things. Look to Christ returning on the clouds of heaven and ask yourself by what power He will raise you from the grave. And the answer again is by the power of His flesh. And all who are not members of Him, all who have not participated, all who have rejected His flesh, their flesh is consumed forever and ever. So next time we participate, beloved, remember the great riches, the great blessedness that we have in Jesus Christ, such that we eat and drink Him. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word and the truth of Thy Word, but also the sacrament to strengthen, enliven our faith so that we faint not nor fail. Give us, O Lord, such faith that believes we are truly joined to Christ, are of His flesh and bones. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.